Before I get started, I want to highlight the importance of enunciation, uh, especially when it comes to catechism uh, memorization. Our family, a handful of us probably chuckled as we've gone through the New City Catechism before, a few years ago, as we went through what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments, uh, we ended up seeking to avoid all dollar trees instead of all idolatry. Uh, which we don't do, I mean, maybe you should avoid Dollar Tree, it's not really very high quality stuff, but uh, the importance of enunciation, uh, you, Jeremy did fine, you guys did fine, it's just our own, our own family in those type of things, but. I am struck by the wisdom of Christ in, seen in scripture, specifically in the Gospels, the unshakable wisdom of Jesus that is found, for example, in Matthew chapter 22. One of my favorite stories just struck with that wisdom. The Pharisees are trying to entangle him in his words, so they ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. It's the perfect trap. Uh, If he says no to paying taxes, then probably there were some spies for the Roman government, Uh, where he could have been turned over as seditious and rebellious, and the the Romans would have taken care of the problem that was Jesus to these Pharisees. If he says yes to paying taxes, well, then the people would turn against him as pro-Roman and anti-Jewish, the perfect trap. But this is how Matthew records this. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The perfect answer to avoid the not so perfect trap that had been set for our all-wise Savior. Like our money today, the coins used as money throughout the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago contained a likeness or an image of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. What was Jesus' point? Well, far more important than what we do with our money that bears the image of our government, far more important than that is what we do with ourselves. For we, as humans, bear the image of God. We're still in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn there, Genesis chapter 1 will be uh, verses 26 and 27 today. Not 15 points and not, uh, let's see, what was that, 34 verses from last week. We'll take a little bit of a smaller chunk. Focusing in on one idea in two verses, on day six of the creation week, the tone and the pace of God's work shifts. He moves quickly through a number of the different days, but then here, it's like there's a pause. And for the first time, as we've walked through all of these different things, we read and talked through that last week, instead of just a command and accomplishment, let there be and there was, instead of that, there's some sort of counsel taken before humanity is created. And a unique statement is spoken over humanity having been created, which is different. The only time in the entire creation week that we see these things taking place. Let's read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Today, we are talking about humanity being created in God's image and God's likeness. What exactly does this mean? And then how does it set us as humans, how does it set us apart from the rest of creation? God, the creator of all things, brought everything into existence for a purpose. A few weeks ago, we mentioned that the biggest questions that we should come to in Genesis are who? God sought to highlight that last week, right? What? He created everything from nothing. And why? Well, God created all things for his own glory. That was the purpose that God had, his own purpose, in bringing everything into existence to display his own glory so that God could say something like, look at what I made and learn of my greatness and of my goodness. That's the why of creation. Well, of course, the God who created is the God who accomplishes, and so he succeeded at this goal. So all of creation does serve as a reflection of God's glory, displaying what he is like. Kind of like without the light of the sun, we wouldn't see anything that exists. But with the sun's light, we see shapes and colors reflecting the sun's light back to us. Where do we see God's glory reflected? Well, the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. So the heavens reflect God's glory. We learn of his greatness and goodness from looking up at the sky and the stars, all these different things. We also see God's glory reflected by plants. How do plants reflect God's glory and teach us about him? Well, I was reminded of John chapter 15, where Jesus says he is the true vine, and we are the branches attached to him. As the branch, us, cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Oh, so our relationship to God is kind of like branches attached to the vine. Plants reflect the glory of God. Animals reflect the glory of God like this as well. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the spotless lamb who was slain for us. And if we don't have lions or lambs, we miss out on what those images are conveying. In another way, angels also created beings, right? Angels are not eternal. They're created. They visibly reflect God's glory. That's why whenever they appear in our physical realm, these spiritual beings, when they take on some sort of a visible bodily form, they shine. Uh, and humans always fear them, and humans always want to worship them because they are reflecting the glorious, bright glory of God. And humans also reflect God's glory. Uh, just a couple examples, right? He is the Father, capital F. And so all of us as fathers, uh, we are supposed to be teaching what he is like. And we do by positive example or by contrast of a negative example. Uh, we are supposed to learn of God the Father through regular earthly fathers. And I was reminded also he is the husband. And we are supposed to see that reflected in regular earthly husbands. And uh, you know, he, he, we see with our eyes, God sees 
right? He, we hear with our ears, God hears. So we see those different types of things reflecting God's glory. But of all the things that God made, we are only told that humanity is created in his image. The only thing in all of scripture that we find out about doing that, and certainly there's some sort of a significance place to that. This is the climax of the creation week in verses 26 and 27. So only humanity is created in God's image. So if it's true that all of creation reflects God's glory, and it does, then reflecting God's glory is not the same as bearing God's image. You see? Everything reflects his glory. Only humanity is made in God's image. So reflecting can't be the same as bearing his image. Otherwise, stars would bear his image because they reflect his glory. Plants, animals, angels, humans, everything. And that's just not true. So reflecting God's glory is not the same thing as bearing his image. However, I think that image of God is often spoken of in a way like that. That it's those characteristics that we share with God in some way uh, that are like image characteristics. And often that's pointed to. Uh, We are, are like God in these ways because we bear his image. But I don't think that image characteristics like this are, are accurate. Uh, these are some statements that maybe you've heard before. So we think about reflecting God's glory. We think, well, God is creative. He creates. Well, humans also create. So perhaps creativity is a mark of bearing God's image. So, well, we create differently, of course, than God does. God created his own materials, uh, and then uh, we just rearrange them right? That's all we're really doing when we're creating things. We're just mixing up and combining things that God has made. But is creativity like this really part of image bearing? And I don't think so. Because we also see other creatures creating beautiful things like we do, rearranging the materials that God made. Uh, As an example, I mean, I think of birds making their nests, those are beautiful acts of rearrangement. You see what you can do with your mouth and then tell me if it's not impressive. Uh, and they're not always just functional. Like, well, they have to live somewhere. No, they're not always functional. They're beautiful. You can think of uh, weaver birds uh, or bower birds uh, organizing by shape and color and making these. I almost showed images of You look it up. Weaver birds, bower birds. And you tell me that's not creative and beautiful and reflective of the God who creates beautiful things. So creativity, I don't think so. What about communication? Maybe we hear this. We can communicate. We communicate using language. God communicates to us. We communicate with each other. Is that image-bearing, though? Animals also communicate with each other, uh, sometimes using sounds and sometimes using scents or other things, which I find almost more <laughs> impressive uh, than what we can do. Uh, bees, ants, dogs, dolphins. Animals can associate sounds with concepts like we do. Have you trained two dogs with different names? They know which one you are referring to when you call them. Uh, And gorillas have been trained to use sign language, right? So there's a concept associated with a symbol communicated with humans. So maybe communication is not part of the image of God. Humans show intelligence sometimes, uh, but so do animals in a variety of ways. Tracking, problem-solving, remembering commands, providing assistance like service animals, Tricking or outsmarting predators or prey or their human masters. Intelligence, maybe not 
part of God's image. Well, relationships, this has to be it, right? God exists eternally in relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have caring, committed relationships. This must be the image characteristics. Well, uh, elephants stick together, and some birds form lifelong, faithful partnerships between a male and a female also. And you'd be like, well, many animals don't do that. Uh, But then again, many humans uh, don't stay faithful in those relationships either. So relationships is not characteristic of image-bearing. Humans demonstrate leadership, hierarchy in society. Maybe this is it. Well, so do many animals. A pride of lions with one clear male ruler or colonies of ants or bees centered around a queen. Humans have a moral capacity. We evaluate things as right or wrong. And uh, we also have a, a higher choosing capacity, a will or a volition. Uh, But from what we read of angels, specifically the fallen angels, they have these capacities as well, yet we don't read of angels being uh, in God's image or bearing his image. And and perhaps, that's the the other piece of that, so perhaps as I I point to these similarities that we share with animals, you're thinking, yes, but that's different. The reason we do what we do or the, the way we do what we do is unique. We are different from animals, and I would say absolutely We are different from animals. I don't disagree with you in the slightest about that. Humanity is unique among all of God's creatures, but that uniqueness can't just be reduced to or described by mere capacities. There's something else. And it has to do with us being in God's image. In many ways, the approach of like setting up these capacities and being like, that's what the image is, Uh, looking at the differences first between humans and animals, uh, it's not really the best approach because we should let the words image and likeness, we should let the words describe the difference rather than starting with the differences and drawing back to the words. Does that make sense? So it's like we can be like, well, what's different? That must be image. But even as I just said, like that kind of falls apart. Well, what do the words mean? That should always be a a first question. What do these words in Scripture mean? Let the Bible and its words teach us about the difference, not just by observation, deducing backwards. So what do these words mean? What do the words image and likeness mean? Drawing that again from verse 26, uh, Genesis 1 specifically. And if we start with the words, we might find something that surprises you. Outside of Genesis, in just a few of these references... These words always refer to statues, normally idol statues. If you do a search for these words and words that are similar to them throughout Scripture, what you're going to come up with is a whole lot of instances of the carved idol statues used for false worship. Same words that we find here. Physical, visible representations of otherwise invisible gods. That's the normal use of these words, but that does raise some questions. Does humanity somehow share a physical resemblance with God? Like that image of the denarius that we put up, right? That there were physical characteristics shared with uh, Caesar, whoever, whichever Caesar, they all had their own printed, right? They, uh, the Roman Empire needed to be in their image, not someone else's image. Well, we don't bear a physical resemblance with God. It's not like we physically look like him because we can't physically look like him. He has no permanent physical form. 
The scriptures teach us God does not have a body. When it speaks of his eyes, he, he sees, but he doesn't have physical eyeballs. He doesn't have a physical nose. He doesn't have physical ears. He doesn't have physical hands, but yet he accomplishes all of these different... He does see. He does hear. Right? He does act. So physical representations, that's what the words mean, but we have no physical comparison between us and God. So what does that do with these words? What does that do with these concepts? Well, the forms of these ancient statues used in idol worship, that did not represent the form of the gods. They represented the, their, their functions. So if you see like the Egyptians using a, a, a cow or a calf in their worship, it's not because they actually thought that their god existed in the form of a cow. It was, it was teaching about what he was like, and it was also sort of a stand-in for his rule. The, the images were representations of the rule of the gods. That statue that oversaw that city representing that god was showing this god rules over this city, this country, this temple. And where the image of a god stood, their rule prevailed. And these statues were not always made of wood or stone or precious metal. In Egypt, for example, remember, that's the context that Moses is writing from and the context that the Israelites would have been coming out of. So this is the way they would have understood these words. Egypt, the pharaohs were often referred to as a living statue of such and such a god. Did you see? Not not an an image carved with a chisel, right? But a living statue statue of such and such a god. And a male pharaoh could be a living image of a female god. So you see, again, like not like they were confused, but those type of things took place. You stand as the representative of my rule. That's what the gods were saying in these things. The terms image and likeness also spoke of a relationship that the gods had with certain individuals. One uh, book writes it this way, in Egyptian thinking, the king is the image of God, because he is the son of God. We see this same idea in Genesis 5. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You hear the, the overlap between these things? God created man in his image, man and woman, and then Adam has his own image, his own likeness, his own son. So there's a functional aspect of it. There's also a relational aspect of it. Image and likeness point to this, a unique relationship of royal sonship. This is the way that these words would have been understood. This is what scripture is pointing us to. Image and likeness point to humanity's unique relationship of royal sonship that God granted to humanity and only to humanity. Image and likeness, the terms can be used somewhat interchangeably, kind of like what happens in Genesis 5, because it's sort of flopped uh, or flipped from what? Flipped or flopped? Both? I guess if you flip and flop, you're just back where you started. If we had to get really specific, we could say that we're created in God's likeness as unique sons and daughters of God. And we're created in God's image as unique kings and queens over creation. Image and likeness 
royal sonship. But this is a, there's an ordering of this, an ordering that looks like this. And as God created things, right, there's, there's God at the top and a relationship between God and humanity, and then a relationship between humanity and creation. But what is this ordering? Well, between God and humanity, there's a relationship of sons and daughters. That is who we are in relationship to God. And then us, as sons and daughters of God, we relate to humanity. We have a relationship as kings and queens over the rest of creation. Now, there is just always that flow. This is the hierarchy that's being said. Humanity created in God's image over creation and in his likeness under him. Right? A unique relationship. This is true. You cannot put anything else in that middle category. You can't say that dolphins relate to God as sons and daughters and have a relationship to creation as kings and queens. It doesn't work that way. You can't say that oak trees are, have a relationship to God as sons and daughters and a relationship over the rest of creation as kings and queens. Uh, or lions. Uh, I would say also not angels because we never hear scripture speak of that either. I think angels are actually kind of outside of this function, a little bit above humanity. That's Psalm 8. I think you're going to touch on Psalm 8. Angels a little bit above humanity until later and then a little bit below humanity. We're not talking about angels right now. I think that there most certainly are character aspects to this, okay? So when we talk about morality, when we talk about like how we are supposed to live, what we're supposed to look like, there is a piece to that. As royal sons and daughters, we are to serve, we are to rule as God would do so because we are extending his rule. We are to be godly kings and queens over creation because we are sons and daughters of God our Father. But again, this is what an image bearer should be like, not what an image bearer is. Because by being more godly, you don't become more of an image bearer. It's not less or more as it comes to this. And that's what we're going to see as we think about the uniqueness of this relationship. What is, what, I have four points. That was all intro. Uh, four points, uh, not 15 though, you're welcome. Four points about our unique relationship of royal sonship. Right? What, is, what, is, what do we learn about image bearing here? The first is that only humanity has this. Genesis 1.26 is clear. Image bearing only applies to humanity. This is the difference that humanity has against animals and the rest of creation in the Genesis 1 creation story. Only humanity created in God's image and according to his likeness. So only humanity has this unique relationship of royal sonship. But we also see all of humanity has this relationship of royal sonship. All without exception, as in every single human being ever. Male and female. We see, uh, if you have uh, ESV like I have, there's a little note on man. It's footnote eight in my, my version of this. Let us make man. And then the note on the ESV where it says man says this. The, the Hebrew word for man, Adam, is the generic term for mankind and then becomes the proper name Adam. So that's why I'm saying humanity and not just man. Or mankind. We could, but those, that's what all of these aspects mean. Well, how do we know that? Well, that explains why a singular noun, man, 
has a plural pronoun in the next verb, the next sentence. Let us make man singular in our image after our likeness. Let, not him, let them have dominion. And we see that in verse 27 as well. So God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them. Because humanity, right, a a collective singular noun. So male, it's not just Adam that bears God's image, it's Adam and Eve, but image bearing does not stop with them. The last Old Testament reference to God's image is found in Genesis 9, after the flood, And God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We're obviously not supposed to understand that to be like, if you kill a woman, it doesn't matter. No, it's again, it's this broad humanity that is being spoken of. So the original creation of Adam and Eve resulted in image bearers. And that persisted across the fall and across the flood to almost this this second try at humanity in Noah and his offspring that the rest of humanity would also still be in God's image. All of humanity bears God's image, male and female, young, very young, and old to very old. There's no, it starts at a month old or a day old or a minute old, and it doesn't end at 90, 95, 100, right? Young and old, we all bear God's image, rich and poor, beautiful and ugly, short and tall, skinny or husky. Do you know the word husky? Husky is one of my least favorite words in the English language. I was not a uh, frail boy, uh, but I did have to wear a uniform for the school that I attended, and uh, uniforms for young men who are not skinny are called husky sizes. Uh, I have two older sisters, and they knew that I had to wear husky sizes. Husky is not my favorite word, but even as a husky young man, I, I still bore God's image. Talented or boring or untalented or uninteresting, we bear God's image. Brilliant uh, or stupid. Uh, Whatever your scale of that is, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, we bear God's image. All of humanity has this. So we are called by God, all of us, to this unique relationship of royal sonship. We as humans, we are created by God to be sons and daughters of God and kings and queens of creation. This is the uniqueness that humanity bears distinct from the rest of creation. And in this, we find a primary identity for humanity. Are we accidents? No. We are image bearers. Are we just animals? No. The animals do not bear God's image, and we do. We are image bearers. So as you ask questions like, you know, who, who am I? You ask questions of, why am I here? Uh, do I matter? The answer is yes. And the answer is yes, not because of your relationship just to other people, whether you're better or worse, more memorable or less memorable. Image bearing does not come with a unique uh, note in a history book or a number of followers 
It comes to a relationship that God has placed on you, that you are an image bearer. And so as you ask those questions of like, do you matter? Are you important? Why are you here? You can say from Genesis 1, I was created to be a royal son or a daughter of God. That's, a, that's an identity statement. This is first and foremost, this is what and who you are. And in this, we also find worth and value for all of humanity in image bearing. Are the rich more significant than the poor? No, for both are divine image bearers. Are the poor more significant than the rich? No, for we are all equally divine image bearers. Do my talents or looks or success or smarts make me a better human than someone else? No, for we are all divine image bearers. Men and women, husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, American, Mexican, Chinese, and Ugandan, and all the other countries that I did not list. God's image in humanity must be respected. It's not just your worth individually, but it's everyone else that you would interact with. It's also the source of their worth it must influence how we interact with other humans, knowing that we are all divine image bearers. Genesis 9, we must not murder our fellow image bearers. Okay, good, check, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, Matthew 5, we must not hate our fellow image bearers. We must not objectify our fellow image bearers through lust. We must not envy our fellow image bearers through a theft or through coveting. Then James 3, again, which I think I maybe looked at a little bit earlier, maybe I skipped over that, but James 3 says, we must not curse our fellow image bearers. I don't think that I did read that passage. See if I can find it quickly. James chapter 3, warning us about the tongue. With it, with our own tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. Good. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. Image bearing, persisting across the Old Testament into the New Testament, relating how we talk about other divine image bearers. We must not curse. In fact, as divine image bearers, we have been called to love our divine image bearing neighbors as ourselves. Amen, right? Yeah. Love our neighbor as ourselves. But hold on a second. When was the last time that you stopped to ask, well, who is my divine image bearing neighbor? Right? Because the man who came to Jesus to ask that question, like, what do I need to do? Well, love God, love your neighbor. You know. It's like, yeah, I do know. Okay, good. Oh, wait a minute. Well, who do you think that applies to? <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> who is my neighbor? I mean, it's not that guy, right? Well, I think we could summarize Jesus' answer in that very parable that he teaches by saying it this way. Who's your neighbor? Well, whoever most needs your love that you least want to love. That's who your neighbor is. As I think I've said before, like when you think, well, who's my neighbor that I have to love as I love myself? Whoever pops into your mind as the one person you hope is the exception, that's your neighbor. Right? That's the truth that Jesus is trying to teach. 
So if you're a staunch Republican conservative, remember that the most liberal Democrat is your divine image-bearing neighbor. As you champion the value of life for the unborn and for the aged, remember that abortion advocates are your divine image-bearing neighbors. Our society demonstrating the anti-God insanity that is the LGBTQ whatever movement, but the man who thinks he is a woman and the woman who thinks that, he's a, that she's a man and the teenager who thinks she's a cat are all divine image bearers and we must not curse them. And then expect that we can come here and bless God with those same mouths. They are all our divine image-bearing neighbors, and Christians of all people must remember that in our interactions with them, whether it comes out of your tongue or comes out of your typing. We curse so many ways, and then we bless God with that same mouth, the same keys, the same taps. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Because we are disrespecting God when we disrespect his image bearers. We, we see behavior that is so wrong. We see behavior that is so ridiculous that it just begs a level of mocking. And maybe there is a place of satire to show absurdity, but we can easily cross that line into a cursing or belittling and thinking that we, we bear more of God's image, that we're, maybe we're more human than somebody who sins in a way that is different from us. And we should call out sin and say, this is wrong, and even this is insanity, and we need to oppose it. But how we say those things matter. When you see a person human being, image bearer. I, I, don't, I don't do that, right? It's jerk cutting me off in traffic. Right? Person getting in my way in the line. Somebody that I'm better than or maybe somebody that's better than me. Right? All of this comparison, trying to find our worth in other things. No. Value as image bearers. So how we talk about people and how we interact with people, the tone and the words that we use matters because every one of the 8 billion humans living and breathing and dying on this planet right now bear God's image. Therefore, they all have intrinsic worth. And because we bear the divine image, we also see a responsibility for all of humanity as image bearers, but I'm going to leave that for Keith to address next week, Lord willing. I know he's going to do a good job because we've already started talking about it, excited about that. We are all called, all of humanity, we are all called by God to live as his image bearers, but we all fail. We have all failed at this calling to live as image bearers. How have we failed? Well, many times we just reject this calling. I don't want to be as God's son or daughter. I don't, I don't want to rule creation as a king or a queen. I just want to coast. I, I don't want to have a part, right? Or maybe it's like, well, other people have parts, but I don't have a part. Maybe it's like, oh, well, humans are nothing special, have no special relationship to God, no special relationship to creation. Maybe that's a way that we reject it. Many worldviews do. Or maybe it's just like, well, somebody else can. Maybe I'm not talented enough, but a talented person will be a son or daughter of God and a king or queen over creation. It's not for me. But no one is exempt from this. 
all of humanity, and we all fail. Maybe we fail by rejecting it. Maybe in our sin, we also replace this calling. Replacing this calling. Specifically, we replace the sonship, that relationship that we were supposed to have with God. And instead of living with God as our father and bearing his likeness, in our sin, we actually replace God in that equation with Satan. That we actually image the evil one. We are liars and we are haters and murderers like our father, the devil. (laughs) We live blinded by the God of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. When we live according to our own sinful desires, contrary to how God would have us to live. You recognize that you're, you're moving yourself out of what you're called to be and giving yourself a different father and seeking to, to live and reflect his likeness. We take the responsibility and authority that we have over creation as divine image bearers and we mar it, and we twist it, we corrupt it. We use our callings as images for our glory rather than God's glory. This is what we mean when it's like what we say to everybody and uh, how we talk and how we dress and how we act and how we post and how we do everything else. Where we're like, hey, 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 look at me. <laughs> it's ironic for a person standing in front of a group of people shouting. We rob glory from God, just like Satan didn't want God to have glory. He wanted glory for himself. And so we image him and we're like, no, 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 don't, don't look back at God. Look at me. It's satanic. And then we use our calling to rule, we use it for our good, right? God is good to creation. We try to, we try to take that goodness for ourselves, not receive it from God, but take it. And we use our authority to take rather than give. And so instead of God's glory and creation's good and each other's good, we, we want our glory and we want our good. It's not imaging God. It's not living in his likeness. I'm reminded that the Israelites groaned under the tyranny of Pharaoh, yearning for deliverance. And that reminds me of Romans 8, where all of creation groans under the tyranny of sinful humanity, yearning for the freedom of Christ's return. What is our rule like? And that's exactly where image bearing takes us next, the freedom of Christ's return. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. We have failed to live as his sons and his daughters. We have failed to extend his rule over creation. Starting in Genesis 3, a month or two or three from now, starting in Genesis 3, the Old Testament walks us through a line of humans failing to live as divine image bearers. Adam failed. Cain failed. Noah failed Abraham failed, Isaac failed, Jacob failed, Judah failed, Moses failed, Joshua failed, the judges failed, Saul failed, David failed, Solomon failed, Rehoboam failed, etc., etc., etc. All of the stories that we walk to show failures of image bearers until we get to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of image bearing. Remember about a year ago or so, how did Paul begin his hymn of praise to Christ in Colossians 1? 
He is the image of the invisible God. Image. Same word. There's a connection here that we find across these things. And this is true of Jesus according to his divine nature. That's what we talked about when we emphasized that, right? He makes the, the invisible God visible. He is the, he's the word that comes out of his mouth. He's, no one has seen God, uh, but we have seen Christ, and so we have seen God, right? We can't see the Father. Even, even this aspect, you can't see my glory. You can see the back part of my glory. You can see, well, who is that? That's, that's the Son, Yes, he bears the image of God in his divine nature, but it's also true Jesus, according to his human nature, bears the image of God. And he's the perfect human. He's, he's the ideal royal son. And he's the fulfillment of the divine image in humanity. Like why Genesis 1, 26 to 27? To get us to Jesus. Because God knew and had planned that we would all fail because he would do what was needed. This drives us to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the original humanity, started with Adam so completely that he became the first prototype of a new humanity. That's what fulfillment brings. Bringing it to a completion and then launching something new. That's why he's called the second Adam. That's why he's the start of God's new recreation. The start of it. He's the firstborn of this creation, and he's the firstborn of the creation that is coming. And then we are the first fruits. We follow after him, and then the rest of creation will also follow. It will all be made new. There will be a new creation with Christ as the head the God-man, bearing image in both, perfectly fulfilling the fact that we are made in the image of God, the perfect royal son. Jesus is the goal and the climax of all of God's purposes. He's the fulfillment of, of all of God's promises. All of them find their yes and their amen. Let it be in Jesus, including this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Christ is the fulfillment. It is not an understatement in the least to say that with the coming of Christ, everything in creation changed. And while all of humanity still bears the divine image from creation, we are now looking forward to something new. We are, we are looking to bear now the image of Christ. And Paul loves this idea. I'm going to rapid fire a few passages at you. Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Speaking of our coming resurrection, Paul writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another transformed into the image of Jesus. 
Ephesians 4.24, in our sanctification, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9, and 10, we, we dealt with a few months ago, speaking of this same idea. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, it's a process, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who created us in Colossians, right? According to Colossians, Jesus. He is our creator. The one who is the image and the firstborn over all of creation. And we, we are being remade into his image. As Christians, we are, we are renewed in the image of Christ. We have been saved by God to bear the image of Jesus. We relate to God through our relationship with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not just you and trying harder, but he, he becomes the mediator between God and us. The God, man, one mediator. And through faith in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. Remember, image, div- royal sonship. We are now sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus, the Son. Through him. Because we failed at it the first time, all of us. He brought it to completion. And then the Holy Spirit is gradually transforming us into the image of Christ to look like him, to act like him, to talk like him, to love like him for his glory. This is the purpose of our salvation, the eternal purpose of God in redeeming us. And as we give ourselves to this new calling, as we eagerly submit ourselves to this transformation, we display Christ's fulfillment of bearing God's image. None of us could do it on our own. We all fall short of God's glory. We reject his fatherhood, so we reject our our sonship. And then we want our own rule. We don't want God's rule. We don't want to be those divine kings or queens or princes, if princesses, if we want to put it in the, the father, right, king, the father rule relationship. Instead of that, we want to just do every other way. So we just failed. Even though we still bear it, we still fail at it. And now there's a new way. It's through the one who, who fulfills it. And we don't get our own fulfillment, like parallel to him. We enter into his fulfillment. United with him, we are sons and daughters. And united with him, we extend his rule. And again, that's the responsibility that we have as is, is image bearers from Genesis and then also uh, image bearers of Christ. Keith will get into that next week. We display Christ's fulfillment of bearing God's image. Humanity tried and failed to live as image bearers on our own. In a perfect place with no suffering, Adam and Eve failed to live as image bearers. And then, but as a redeemed people with the law of God's commands clearly spelled out for them, the Israelites failed to live as image bearers. And David as king with all the promises of God rested on him, right? And Solomon, his son, failed to live as an image bearer. But now Paul wrote to the Romans, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin 
he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, for us, on our behalf, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ succeeded where everyone else failed. Everyone who came before us, everyone in this room, everyone who would come after us, failures. Jesus succeeded where we all failed. If you succeeded where everybody else had failed, you would rub it in their faces. Right? I would. Why can't you? I did. Jesus isn't like us. Thankfully, Jesus is not like us. He's like us in every way except those ways, right? Because that's our sin. Jesus is not like us in our sin. So he doesn't rub it in our faces. And he doesn't say, see, I I told you it could be done. That's not the gospel. Now try it. I showed you the way. Now you do what I did. It's not how Jesus stands in our place. Instead of pushing us further away from God, Jesus In his success, in his fulfillment, Jesus mercifully and graciously brings us into his success. He he brings us back into fellowship with God. You failed. He succeeded. So by faith, he bore the penalty for your failure, and he gives you the rewards of his success. It's the remarkable truth of the gospel. Don't try to make excuses for being a failure. You just are. And you are because you're a sinner. And it's just true that Jesus is different in that way. And Jesus offers you the fulfillment that he has and offers you a new way to bear God's image, which is what you were created for. Jesus became the image of humanity so that we, through him, might be remade into his image, who is the true image of God. Jesus became the image of us so that through him we might become the image of God. That's his fulfillment for all of these things. Brothers and sisters, that that is who you are. That That is what you are. You are an image bearer. Those coins that were shown to Christ, they bore the image of Caesar. Well, then, let Caesar have what's his. But you, Christian, you are an image bearer of Christ. That's whose image you bear. So live in such a way that, as Jesus said, let's render to Christ the things that are Christ's. It's you. You are Christ's. Let's give back to Christ what belongs to Christ. Father, we, we marvel at the the glory and wisdom of creation And I marvel at even in that, even knowing by your perfect ordained plan, our utter failure to live as you have called us to live. Yet even in that, before that first, let there be anything that your plan of redemption, that Jesus would fulfill everything that was needed so that you would be glorified through your son, Jesus Christ. Please open our eyes to look at other image bearers as you have called us to do to look at Christ as the fulfillment as we walk with you by faith to to bear Christ's image gladly and, and submit ourselves eagerly to that transformation. Please, one degree of glory to the next. Please remake us into Christ's image. You would be glorified. Amen.